I'm Kevin. And I'm Josh. And on this episode of the Filmmaker's Guide to the Industry, we talked to Kat Sullivan. Kat and I went to school together at Florida State University, and since graduating, she has made her way from Tallahassee to Seattle down to L.A. She is a L.A. producer who has worked on shows such as Top Chef, MasterChef, and most recently, Nailed It, which is a Netflix TV series. Uh, Kat, thank you for joining us. Um, so we go back to our Florida State days. Um, it's yeah. actually weird to think that that was, it feels like a different lifetime ago, honestly. Um, so how did you end up going from Florida State out to L.A.? Okay, so, um, yeah, I mean, first of all, very crazy that you're doing this now. And we were, it feels like yesterday, making Seminole Nightlife. But um, Ooh, what's Seminole Nightlife? Oh, Seminole Nightlife was a, a late night variety show that Kevin and I created with another another Kevin and um, produced for like two years in college. It's still so going on to my knowledge. I think it is. Yeah. So did so you guys start I, it or was it just something that you like picked up and ran? No, with no it? we started it. We started it. it. Look at yeah. you guys. Pioneers. That's how Kevin and I kind of became friends was through that process because it was it was uh, it was very it was very fun but there was it was definitely a huge learning experience. Wow. Yeah. So that that was um, a lot of time to, to went into starting something that had never been done at, on campus. So yeah, it was sure. um, we used uh, WFSU, the TV station up there. There's mm-hmm. stu- big studio space. It was one of my jobs when I was in college. I was a part time, um, you know, whatever twenty five hour a week at the TV station and. Um, it it was it was interesting. So yeah, we did two episodes, right? Yeah, and then, two episodes. They redid it. Um, so one episode every year because it was a full thirty minute show with commercial breaks and different mm-hmm. segments and musicians and comedy skits. Um, wow, it was it was a lot of fun. And it's to, like I said, as of last year, mm-hmm. uh, last school year, um, it was still happening. So we would have right. started that in two thousand eleven. Yeah, it's 2011. So it's been, it's almost 10 years. It, 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 That's crazy. Yeah, hopefully it actually hits the 10 year mark. Maybe, maybe we, <laughs> maybe we reconvene at uh, Florida State for that. <laughs> we'll have to go back and restart it just to make sure we get to that 2021's mark. Um, but yeah, Kat was yeah. the producer on it. So oh, cool. that's when um, I definitely saw that she was probably going to be a producer. Mm-hmm. Um, it was pretty evident, quite frankly. So from, oh, from there, you ended up, um, you know, traveling so, quite a bit. Yeah. So basically what I, I, that senior year of college, I think I applied to 75 jobs in LA and no one wanted to hire me. <laughs> and then, um, and it was like receptionist, whatever PA jobs. Um, and then through like pure luck, my brother's best friend's sister was the line producer on Top Chef. Um, and she basically told me nothing about the show, said, if you can make it to Seattle in a month, then I might be able to give you a PA job. So I basically drove from Tallahassee to Seattle, found a place to live. And then that was my first job in the industry, which was, you know, on that show, being a PA is more than just like doing runs. Like you're, you have your elbows, like you're, you're cleaning all the dishes. So like you're, you're like, you have food up to your elbows. Like you're, it's just like one of the grimiest, grimiest PA jobs you can do because there's so much, um, 
you just really have to get dirty with it. Um, but it's super fun. And then, um, the ones I did that show as a PA, um, they ended up liking me. So they, they hired me on, they like hired me on down in LA. Um, and then that whole network that does the top chef, um, shows this company called magical elves is like one of the biggest, uh, reality companies in Los Angeles. But all the people that leave from the magical elves kind of have this like community. So they hire the other, they hire other people who have gone through basically this, um, very, you know, tough, um, grueling show. So it's kind of interesting, but I think at this point, I, every single year I've worked with like probably at least a handful of elves throughout the entire year because everyone just kind of stays connected and, and, um, helps each other out, which is very nice. I mean, we hear it all the time in the industry. It's, you know, sometimes you, I mean, you have to be good at what you do, but you do need to know the right people. I mean, it's, yeah, it's pretty evident um, that that continues to be the case, even, you know, in LA, um, it's no different in, in this market over, over here or in New York where um, I know Josh does some work up there as well. So we're all, we're all familiar with that. Now from there, you, you do have some credits um, that I was seeing um, from yeah. Top Shelf and um, Master Shelf. Um, uh, wh- how how did you make that jump from PA to the producing world, which is where you live now? Um, so for me, like looking at when you're when you're, I feel like when you are a PA, you have this kind of benefit that you can kind of just see what everyone above you is doing, and you can kind of get an idea of like. I want to be that type of producer that knows everything or I want to be that type of department head that is aware of not only what his department's doing, but knows what the lighting department's doing and knows what the production department's doing. And so when I was a, a PA, um, I kind of just was very, I guess, aware of what was happening around me. And I realized that I think in order to be a really good showrunner, you have to know what every department is doing and like what their job is and how to accomplish that job. So I took a lot of interest in every department. Um, But particularly, I realized that one of the really important departments that kind of gets overlooked is production management. And um, they're the ones that handle like all the logistics and they're the ones that make sure the crew eat and like all these things that no one really in the grand scheme of things it might not be the most important thing that's with getting on screen, but it's kind of like a crash course and how to keep people happy. Um, so I ended up going once I was a PA after PAing for a year, cause I PA'd on top chef. And then I came to LA and I ended up working on after lately, which is a scripted series. Um, that was about, uh, Chelsea Handler's show Chelsea lately, like after the show had taped or like what goes on in their offices. It was like her version of the office, so I worked on that show um, as a showrunner's assistant and learned a lot there. Um, I, that's where I gained, I think, we gained one of my mentors in the industry, um, who's a comedy director. And then um, from there, I got asked to come back to Top Chef the following year as an assistant coordinator. And so I jumped at that opportunity because basically when you're a PA, you want to you want to move up as fast as you can. And if they think you're smart, then they'll give you those opportunities. So I kind of grasped that opportunity and I went out there and I was booking travel and it was, you know, it was it was a grind working like 16, 18 hour days. And everyone you're the person that everyone comes to kind of complain to or get upset about what's happening in their department. But you have to learn how to take care of everyone. So 
basically I did, I was in production management for probably, probably almost maybe eight months or a year. And then I transitioned into, um, producing, um, full time. And I think before I did my first eight, my first assistant coordinator job, I did produce a, um, standup special with the comedy director that was, um, like a mentor to me. But, um, I think it took me about a year and a half, maybe two years to get into producing full time, which was an interesting transition. Oh, <clears throat> why do you say that? Um, I just say it's very hard to, to get into producing and then to stay at that level. Hmm. Um, especially when you're coming up in the industry and maybe you're working with the same people, like whereas networks are networking and having a network is great, but then you kind of run into this issue where people see you as one thing. Right. And so it can become kind of stagnant and stale and you have to constantly like almost like leave the ones you love, go to a different company, come back so that they see you for like, what it is that you want to be recognized for and kind of like what it is that you want to do. So, um, it's like a constant ping pong match of like getting people to kind of recognize their accomplishments because otherwise people kind of become very, um, very comfortable with where you're at and they don't see you for anything more than, than the position that you're currently in. Right. Yeah. I mean, that happens all the time. And Mm -hmm. when we were texting earlier this week, you said something pretty, I mean, it's, incredibly accurate, but you were saying that freelancing is, um, very rewarding, but you, you can have trouble booking your next job if you're, if you're not on the right path. Um, how's the, yeah. free, how's the freelance life been treating you? Cause I mean, that's all you're doing now, correct? You're, I mean, even though you're with yeah. some of the same companies, um, you still are a freelancer. Yeah. I mean, I've been freelance for eight years now. So, um, it's, freelancing is probably one of the toughest things to, to kind of work through because it brings a lot of self doubt. Like, you know, there might be times of the year where like, I know now the times of the year that are slow for me are always going to be November, November to January. And then for whatever reason, July, like, I don't know why July, but just July, Interesting. (laughs) November, January makes sense because it's like the holidays, no one's doing anything, but then for whatever reason that July is just like a weird bump. It's the same. Um, It's the same here. It's like, so I don't know if it's at least here in Tampa. I think the reason July is, is basically a non-go. It's just, it's so damn hot. It's just, I feel like it's, and I feel like everyone's on vacation or something. Like it doesn't mm, make any sense. Yeah. Everyone, all the kids are out of school. Go, gotta go get some stuff done. Yeah, totally. So that's a really hard thing to do. And I think the first time when you're freelancing and the first time that you don't have work, it is like that inner voice in your head that says you can't do things is like, it's my time to shine. I am going to tell you all the reasons why you shouldn't be doing this, be in this industry. So you kind of have to really learn how to push past that and, um, and know that like, even though you might be applying for jobs and interviewing for jobs and it's not, you're not getting booked that, that it will come around, but you just have to be kind of faithful. And then also, and when you're freelance, those months that you do have off, it's hard to look at those months as like, this is my vacation time because you're not really making any money and you're afraid to send, spend money because you don't know when's, when's the next time you're going to have a job. But, um, what I try to do now is I focus, I try to focus more on my writing when I'm doing, when I'm in those, those dry spells, but it's all like kind of easier said than done. It's very, it's very hard on like your overall like psyche and then like your mental health. But, um, but usually it's just constantly sending that. I mean, I'm looking for a job every four to six weeks. 
So it's just about like constantly sending out your resumes and making sure, you know, you're very um, active and like listening to what's happening in the industry, but then also like constantly sending out your resumes to people. Like if I'm in between a job, I send out my resume to, I think I have a list of 115 people. So I'll email every single one of them and just hopefully someone's heard of something or needs someone. And then, then it can kind of go from there. Yeah. So, you know, as a, as we're all freelancers here. So, I mean, as, as freelancers kind of, how do you ride the line between, you know, self-promotion and non-self-promotion? I mean, do you do a lot of it or, you know, uh, do you, how do you you kind of deal with that? Because, you know, you run into people a lot of times that are very almost obtrusive about it, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, how do you kind of deal with that? Well, it's, that's like, it's, it's, I mean, you're right. That's like a very like tough line to, to ride. Um, I will say that like in that list of people that I send my resumes to, I have them like tiered off. Like I'm mm. like, these people, I know I can, they're, they're like, it, it, I have to create these tiers. Cause then there's like my bottom, like 30 people where I'm like, okay, this is now I'm, now I'm kind of crossing that line into everyone knows that I need work and <laughs> maybe it's a little too far, but at the same, you just have to keep on setting them or, or right. it's maybe like, this isn't my favorite boss, but, or it's not my favorite person to work for, but they might have a job and I got to send it to them. Um, so that's difficult. I mean, I, I, from time to time will post on I mean, I don't really use Facebook, but from time to time, I have to post on Facebook and be like, does anyone have, I mean, I'm available. If anyone wants me, um, please. But they, um, but I feel like that's where probably where, where it gets a little bit too self-promoting is maybe when you cross into those fears, but you also, you just kind of, you have to kind of lose your ego and just do it because otherwise, otherwise you might not you might miss that opportunity that someone would have hired you in a heartbeat, but they had no idea that you're even available. Yeah. And I, I kind of feel like sometimes, you know, I'm constantly battling, you know, you kind of spoke of it earlier, which is the, what job position you're in. But I also feel like there's that battle there of just people remembering you and not that yeah. they, not that they forget you on purpose or, you know, forget about you because they didn't like working with you. They just, you know, everyone's got so much on their plate, especially when it comes to getting projects going. And if you're just Mm -hmm. not, you know, putting yourself out there and you're not on their mind constantly, you know, you kind of get lost in the weeds a little bit. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, for that was a big realization for me personally, because, um, I, in 2014, I want to say, 2014, 2000. Yeah. I think maybe it was 2013, 2014. Um, I took a staff job at Chelsea Handler's, um, Netflix show. So, which is great. I got to have work consistent work. That was the first time that really has happened that I had two years that I was just working and we had hiatuses and you got paid and it was lovely. But, um, then having to reemerge from that stability back into freelance and the past few years was like, such a wake up call and you realize that, yeah, you haven't been reaching out to those people like you would like, like how you need to. Um, and you get forgotten. Right. So that was a huge wake up call. Sure. How long did, do you think it took you to kind of be, be back on people's radars? Um, I, I feel like it took me, it probably took me about like, I want to say like four to six months before I will like not to lie that year after Chelsea was really tough because no one really knew that 
you know, that you're back freelancing, that you're available for this work or like, what is the work that you want to do? Because you kind of took this detour a little bit, but yeah, it probably took four to six months for people to start remembering, Hmm. uh, to call me. And then, so that year was like, really, that year was the longest year ever. And, um, then luckily the next year it was like kind of back to normal and people knew that you were available and that you weren't, um, you know, uh, staffed anywhere. So that you got the, the calls would come in a lot more. Well, you, you were the one who brought up, um, Chelsea and I kind of want to dive into how she was, how was, how was working on that show for two years. It was 32 episodes, 30 episodes, something, right? Something, I mean, I, yeah, it was I don't definitely, know the it, was in the thir- it was in the 30s. I know that. Um, um, it was a lot because like we did, we did, um, so that show was on for two years. My first year on that show, I was a producer. Um, so I would produce a lot of the field segments where she would go out and do like documentary moments um, uh, of variety of different topics. And then we would also do these um, dinner party episodes where a bunch of celebrities would come over to Chelsea's mm. house and yeah, then remember those. talk about, yeah. And those, those were really interesting to produce because um, myself and my producing partner, Allison would have to like go and, and do so much research and then um, like come up with all these ideas. And, and if one of the, I would have to say that working on Chelsea as a segment producer was one of the best producing um, experiences I have. I have had because one Netflix just like they're open to any ideas. So they're very creative driven. They're very collaborative. So we could pitch anything like we could read, you know, find some obscure magazine article and, and, and pitch it. And Chelsea was very receptive to different ideas and, and her, her, our, our producing team over there was very receptive to just pushing the boundaries and just trying to like do something different that people weren't doing. So that was really exciting. Cause you could just, kind of pitch your anything like any segment that you thought was cool and then maybe it didn't go anywhere maybe it wasn't received but received well or wasn't producible but um it was very very creative and collaborative which is like an amazing environment to be a part of um so when you say not producible what makes a show you know maybe in that environment what was like the line too far what made it not producible like what were the things they were kind of you know looking for i'm trying to think I'm trying to think of like, I'm really good at finding amazing ideas that are like logistically are not possible <laughs> because I'm like, I want to do this thing. And then everyone's like, no, can't stop. Um, <laughs> but let me, I'm, it really comes down to that. It's like coming up with these, some, maybe it's a really cool concept and the idea is really great. But then at the end of the day, like right. logistically, it's just not going to come together or you have to draw a line always, always in producing there's a money line so there's just right. a point where cost is too much but and I'll, I'll try to think about i'm trying to remember a segment that i was like really pushing i mean i kept on i wanted everyone to go to finland no one was no one was really jumping onto that one oh, boo. because that's a personal thing that i've wanted to go there since i was like 12 and so i had like i mean i had like 20 segments ready to go for that country and they're like please stop um <laughs> <laughs> so well, it really comes down down to that. What was a segment that you were, um, you know, you took the lead on, and that you were you were primarily responsible for? Is there anything that comes to mind? Um, think so because so for, and a lot of, on a lot of shows, and for this show, you produce in a team. So you have, um, I have who's one of my best friends now, Allison. 
um, we had produced together on um, Top Chef and then ended up, Allison ended up coming on board Chelsea and then we were a team for Chelsea. So we did a lot of, um, we, we did all of the dinner segments, which were really cool because you get to, you're working to develop, you're like, you're really into the writing and like the, the developing of like what the questions are and kind of driving what the story is going to be. Um, which was a fun, um, different type of producing, um, as far as like, not just about like booking locations and, um, booking talent and all those kind of things. Um, I'm trying to think about, I mean, it's, this is like a two years ago. So I'm trying to think about what other segments we did that were really cool. Oh, I, I, hate to bur- a, I hate to burst your yeah. bubble, but it's more than two years ago. Was it? Oh God, that's sad. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry to do that to you, but uh, yeah, yeah de- def. I yeah. mean, I, I get it all too much. I mean, thanks, Kevin. T- time, I appreciate it. Yeah, time just kind of blends together a little bit now. Um, yeah. Um, we did some cool things. I mean, I, I'm not gonna lie; it was fun when we got to go. We got to go um, shoot with uh, Jason Biggs and the um, Olympic water polo water, water polo team. That was fun. So, you don't you don't fun, you don't usually hear Olympic water polo and fun used in the same sentence. So I'll I'll, t- I'll take you on that one. I mean, I wasn't having to do it, so that was fun. <laughs> I just got to, I just had to like sit on the sidelines. I, I actually remember that segment. Funny enough, um, you know, yeah, you we, were, had, we made Jason put a speedo on and stand next to them. It was great. Now that was also when you started um, writing a lot more. Um, was on yeah. Chelsea's show and. You made a few appearances, if memory serves. Yes, I did. Um, yeah. Um, but, no, go ahead. No, I, 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 you see where this is going. Um, I know. <laughs> how, how fun was it being on camera? Just, I mean, it, was that a, you know, suddenly it just made sense for you to join in on a segment, or was that Chelsea saying, "Cat, I'm, you're, you're coming on screen with me today." Yeah. Well, so that's, so yeah, basically after a year I switched into, there was a, the writer's assistant that had been there got up to, um, a writer and I wanted to get in the writing department. So I decided to just like make that move. And I became one of the writer's assistants or, or the writer's assistant in the department, which is mainly just organizational. Um, but prior to that, yeah, I just started doing a lot of on camera stuff, which I can't remember what the, I can't remember which I think the first one I think the first on camera segment I did for that show was we did a creative meeting on edibles and um which was real fun for my mom to find out about (laughs) and then um she actually found out because I accidentally sent her my medical marijuana card um when I meant to text it to the producer that was doing the segment and I texted it to her and then I tried to bury it and then she was like Catherine, are you doing drugs? Um, <laughs> so they're, they're legal, mom. They're legal. No, you should have. You like, should have blamed it on your sister. So, so, uh, so, Cat does have a twin sister. Oh. So yeah. you should. You one hundred percent should have just been like, wasn't me. Wasn't me. I know, but my mom's like, I know. We all know it's you. Um, <laughs> but basically, I, for whatever reason, the the writers and we would have a very when we were producing segments, and um, we'd have a, we'd have a very like strong. I guess, I don't know how to say it, but I guess dialogue with the writers um, and the writers were ultimately the ones who were deciding who would go in what segments. And then they would like pitch a list of staffers to Chelsea and then Chelsea would be like, yes, this person, this person, this person. And um, I, 
I don't know. I mean, I don't know why Chelsea noticed me, but she, she thought I was funny. And so she kept on putting me into segments, um, which was really, I don't know. It was very, I'm trying to think of the best way to say it, but it was very, it was amazing because I, I've always thought I was funny, but like, I never, you know, I, I've always had that self doubt that I'm not because no one's ever kind of acknowledged it. And then Chelsea acknowledged it. And she was like, this, this girl's funny. I want her to be on the segments. And I got to be a part of, I think I did 11, um, on camera segments for the show throughout the two years. Um, which was really an amazing experience because I realized that that's maybe a side of the industry that I want to do, but I've always kind of been like, Oh, you can't be, you can't be the one who wants to be a producer and an actor and a writer. Like you can't be that person. So, um, it helped me kind of realize that like, it's okay to, to want to have that, that diverse experience. And it's okay to like, to make people laugh (laughs) and to be like, be on camera and do that kind of stuff. So it was, that was, really a highlight i think of being at that show nice so so when you do that and you're on screen and you're also producing does that mean that they have to uh sag you or anything or it's just because you're already on payroll as a producer there's no problem with any of that well yeah so they there's just a task they task partly you which is basically Mm -hmm. you get like so many task partly and you get into the union right so i you know but apparently during this time frame, SAG was all backed up with how many people were being tapped heart leave throughout the industry or whatever it was that I never got the letter saying I had to join the union. Oh man. So, but I'm like, also like, excuse me, can I please have the letter? I'll join. Like, <laughs> but they never sent it. Whereas another one of my um, coworkers who was only like in the background, like a, like an extra for some sketch wasn't even like speaking or anything. Um, she got tapped heart or she got the letter after her first tapped heartly that she had to join the union. So I'm like, what? Like, excuse me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I, I technically, I should be sad right now, but I'm not because they never sent me the paperwork. Well, so. you, you probably still got your time. I mean, it could probably still happen. I would guess. Yeah. Yeah. If I, if I go about, go through all the, uh, yeah, all the hoops and everything. Interesting. Yeah being on that show was that was that one of the reasons why you now do both the culinary shows and comedy because you've kind of found that doing two different things is one of your passions because i mean those those two different they they, they're definitely two different worlds to live in is the the comedy and the the culinary which is what you primarily do yeah well it's interesting because I've always liked, I've always been drawn towards comedy. Like I've always loved comedy, but then actually in high school, I almost went to culinary school instead of going to college. Cause I wanted to, um, I thought I wanted to be a chef. Um, and then at my high school in Pennsylvania, you, in your, in your junior year, you have to, um, go and shadow someone in the industry that you're interested in. So I went and shadowed a chef, um, in the suburbs of Philadelphia and, this guy was a like a total total jerk and he basically told me women don't do well in the kitchen because they're not loud enough and then that was the first and only time that someone's told me I couldn't do something and I actually accepted it Mm -hmm. so then at the same time when I was interested in doing um going to culinary school and and 
going through that path, I was also interested in media. So then I'll ultimately like, I'm just going to do, I'm just going to do TV. That's what, that's what I'm going to do. And then it like, oddly enough, the fact that I kind of landed in this like cooking side uh, or this like uh, cooking competition side of the industry is just kind of, it's very all out of coincidence, but it's kind of all of my passions that I've had since I was young, like combined together. And then the comedy side of things, um, having this mentor, um, director, um, Jay Karras very early on in my career, um, allowed me to kind of develop and see that I had like the comedic instincts in order to kind of go more towards, uh, producing comedic things. And he, he brings me on to help produce a lot of, um, stand-up specials that he'll direct. And for oh, like a year and a half, I was his director's assistant where, um, I got to go and help him block out uh, shoots for Parks and Rec and Raising Hope and some sitcoms like that. So it just became this weird thing that I got lucky and I kind of got founded in both industries. And now um, I am working on a show called Nailed It, um, which is for Netflix and kind of combines the comedy and the cooking competition. So now I've become known as this like cooking comedy lady <laughs> so which is great because everyone's now trying to replicate nailed it because nailed it was so successful for um netflix and it's one of their most popular um it's one of the most popular unscripted shows on like overall i think in the top five interesting the most watched so it's it's very it's very interesting it's like a, it's a super niche skill set and it's fun. I mean, I like, I like being able to do, be able to do both sides and they know that I can come in, I can produce a cooking competition series and make it funny at the same time. And Pete, that's a very attractive um, niche right now in the industry. So Netflix, um, you know, how's it, how's it different compared to some of the other studios that you've worked with? Cause you know, you've got pretty good experience across the board. So, you know, kind of where do they fall in comparison and, you know, What's kind of, what do you feel like just internally is kind of setting them apart with how they do business? Um, I think Netflix as like, as a network, um, they really put creativity at the forefront, like kind of above all else. And I think that's kind of what helps drive them and push them to, and pushes them to kind of excel, um, you know, I don't work, I haven't worked specifically at Netflix, but my understanding from their culture is that they're very, um, they really want people to do like, to be, to take the initiative. So they mm -hmm. want people to take the initiative and they want people to put forth ideas. And, and that's what I learned internally from like, from looking from afar. That's what I've kind of gleaned from my experiences with them. But then working with them, probably the closest I've probably worked with the actual net network execs would be on Nailed It. And they're very receptive to like the craziest ideas and they'll talk it through and they'll kind of take all those ideas and, and then they'll, um, they'll decide what's the right path or, or they'll, they're willing to talk things through a lot of networks have an idea of what a show is. And then they don't want to kind of talk things through or, or collaborate. And I think that's why Netflix kind of excels is because they will collaborate with their producers. They're not just saying, make us a show. That's it. We don't care about what your ideas are, Right. like deliver it. So that helps them, I think, get a new perspective on whatever idea it is that they're trying to sell. And when you're getting notes from them, I mean, is it like other 
you know, places where you're getting notes from marketing, you're getting notes from this or that branch of the, of the company or, you know, not just a creative department. Are you kind of getting notes from all over the place or? No, well, for, for pretty, I mean, this is pretty much across the board for all networks. You're dealing with like your, you appoint people from the network that you're dealing with, right. And they're the ones giving you all the notes. So they might get some information from marketing and, and sometimes with, um, Netflix will get some information from other, like from social or for marketing for certain ideas, like what's doing well in the um, social market. But overall, they're not always super specific about which, where the notes are coming from. They're just kind of giving you, Mm. these are the notes that we've kind of come up with as a company. Gotcha. Um, And so with Nailed It, I mean, was that was that a Netflix show from the beginning or was that kind of brought to Netflix from a, you know, from a production company? How did that come about to be? So nailed it is, I don't know the whole process of how they sold it and all that stuff, but I know that um, it's been at Netflix from the beginning. It's produced by magical elves. So the same company as top chefs Um, and magical elves has always been the producer for it. Um, I, and they, um, they, they, they're very collaborative with, with Netflix and, and getting to where, getting it where it needs to be. But it's, we've done three cycles now and hopefully we'll, we'll get to do another, but that's still, you know, waiting to hear from if that's happening or not. And then, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, Sure. It's all kind of like, I don't know, it flows back and forth, I guess. Sure. Um, next thing, you know, anytime we talk about film school, like there's there's one thing that I always like to ask is, you know, your time at film school, you know, what did you get out of it? Would you do it again? You know, do you recommend it? Because I feel like everyone has such a large variety of experience and I'd really kind of like to unpack uh, the film school, the film school experience a little bit. All right. Yeah. I mean, I will say the first thing that pops in my mind when you ask that question is that, um, at our school, I feel like there's a big rivalry between the film school and the media production school. So we, I did media production. And the only reason why I want to highlight that is because I think we had a lot, um, more access to technology and to, to kind of what's happening within the industry. And it wasn't, you're thinking more in a um, team mindset than you were about like, who am I going to be personally as a filmmaker? Right. And I'll always remember the first day of when we all got into the major and um, Andy Opal, who was our, the head of our program basically said there was all these kids in the, in the program who had not gone to film school. They'd gone into the media production program. Getting into the media production program was very difficult, but getting into the film school was just a little bit harder. So all these kids were very upset that they had landed where they were. Ultimately, we were all learning the same skills, but we weren't using film. We were just using digital, which is what everyone uses now anyway. Right. And then um, and Pro- Professor Opal said to us, he was like, this is in film school. I'm not going to nurse your ego. And I like this person already. To me, I was like, that's, this is exactly where I need to be because I mean, I, I think that in the moment I knew that you needed to have a lot of teamwork and you need to learn how to work with different personalities and people that you necessarily might not like. 
And that skill set for me now as a producer, and this is like, you know, probably 10 years after that, that conversation with Opal, um, that's probably the most important thing that you learn is that it's not about your ego. It's about what we're doing together as a group, because when you're on set, you're working with, like I I work on sets where I'm supervising 115 people. And if I'm going to be only worried about my ego, then that's not helping anyone. Right. So I think that was a really good foundation for our overall education because I, I think that was a good foundation, I guess, because ultimately that's what you actually experience in the industry. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, outside of that, you know, what do you kind of feel, is there anything that you felt like you were missing from that experience? Or, I mean, cause that's a totally different, you, you hit the nail on the head first off with the film school, as opposed to media. Um, I, I, I was a film school kid. So, oh, I'm sorry. No, it's, no, you're fine. You're fine. You're you're hundred percent correct because, you know, I feel with kind of what you touched on, they're also not a lot of film schools, FSU included, because I mean, I've, I've, I met a bunch of people, I've worked with a bunch of people, a lot of friends that did FSU because I used to live up in the panhandle. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, even those, even the accomplished ones have still, in my opinion, kind of not had all the skill sets they could have had. Um, I feel like there's still some missing, you know, from a film school environment um, because it is so centered around ego and what you're going to be. And it's so driven towards writing, producing, or directing and cinematography Mm -hmm. that, you know, a lot of that's left out. And I feel, you know, in your field, my field as well, you know, producing and management and stuff that there's a lot of producers and managers out there that are not prepared and don't really know what it takes, you know, at least early on career wise, don't really know what it takes to actually execute or get anything done, you know? And they're, they're kind of ill prepared. And, you know, I've run into a lot of kids that are, you know, thinking because they have, they're young and, you know, they're going somewhere that they have the title of producer or, you know, producer's assistant or something else. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they are kind of expecting a certain thing and then the industry is not that way. Um, there's a big learning curve with that. Um, so with that being said, like, what do you feel like has been, you know, the biggest thing that you learned early on when you were, you know, kind of transitioning into being a producer that affected how you, how you worked the most. Um, and I'm also really interested in what the difference you kind of felt like being full-time with Netflix and Chelsea, as opposed to being a freelance producer, you know, what are kind of the differences between those two experiences, um, between each other? Yeah. So I, as far as like transitioning into transitioning into like being a producer, so being that uh, associate producer when you when you first get that spot, um, it's uh, that position to me is like very crucial in the producing department because that person is organizing. They are um, doing all the minutia that the you know the higher level producers can't really take on mm-hmm. or that they need to get off their plate. So the whole point of that position is you have to be so versatile because you don't know what it is that like your supervising producer or your showrunner can't do and is going to need you to do. So, um, in that position, um, you know, kind of speaking a little bit about like 
how media production helped with that. You just have to be ready to do anything. So I was, I, I'm able to, um, like throughout that early on stage, I could edit together clips for my producers if they needed it. I could write pitches or write um, scripts if they needed it. I could Photoshop things if they needed it. And it just became like just being able to handle everything beyond just the initial organization of just the department um, was really crucial, I think, in helping me move up as quickly as I have. Um, was just showing that I'm smart and I can I know how to do all these other things that most producers would just ignore or not care to kind of continue to develop those skills um, because it's not necessarily it's not necessarily part of the job but if you make it a part of the job I think it helps you kind of excel and, and go further um, so that was one thing I think early on with with being um, an AP and, and overall for that position you just had to show so much initiative and just keep doing the things that you think need to be done to, to get the department organized or to um, help your boss get ahead. Because when you get to those higher, like, especially right now, I'm, I'm at the co-EP level, but I'm, it's like so much, so much more stress and you realize how much more <laughs> important those APs are because when you don't have enough, you're like, Oh God, I have to do this thing, but I don't have time to do it because these things are more important. And so there's a lot of, um, you really start to appreciate like who you were as an AP because it's sometimes it's hard to find someone who's, who's mm -hmm. going to kind of really pull it out for you. Um, as far as like, sorry, what was the other question about Chelsea? Yeah, no, the differences between, you know, a, a pay position, you know, I would say a salaried or kind of, you know, full-time position compared to mm -hmm. freelancing. You know, what are yeah. the what are the major differences? Obviously, you know, th there's the big glaring differences of you have an HR department, you know, something as simple as that, that you don't have when you're a freelancer, you know, the production companies that hire you do. But I mean, mm -hmm. just kind of what, you know, is there any major difference between when you are salaried somewhere and when you're freelancing, you know, that someone may not have thought about, you know, if they're mm -hmm. if they themselves are considering, like, should I take this? you know, full-time position or should I stay freelancing and keep my ability to say yes and no to things, you know, kind of what, yeah. what are those differences? What are maybe some of the pitfalls of, mm -hmm. you know, that lifestyle? Yeah. I mean, so I guess I would say Chelsea was probably the closest to having a staff position. It wasn't technically salary, but, okay. but, um, we did get healthcare, which is a, that's a huge big thing. benefit. Um, I would say, honestly, that's probably the biggest, uh, plus of going staff anywhere is that you don't have to deal with getting your own health. Like you don't have to get your own health care right. uh, independently. Um, but other than that, I think it's just like, I think freelance, it takes a certain mentality to do freelance. You have to be willing to work for two months as hard as you can, that you're working 18 hour days and then you're going to have a week off and then maybe you'll get another job. And so it's like this roller coaster in your mind of like your life and you ultimately, I think, probably for most people who do freelance would agree, your quality of life goes down a little bit because you have to give everything to this job for six weeks, eight weeks. Um, and you're working, you know, from anywhere from 12 to 18 hours in a day yeah. and on weekends, like your whole life is given to this job. Whereas when you're staffed, it's a little bit more of like a, 
nine to five situation. You right. get to leave. Like it's not as stressful or as demanding. Um, which is like, I, I think a big, a big point to highlight is that really, I think it comes down to quality of life. Now, I think it's for me, it's the eight years I'm starting to figure out how to increase quality of life and still do freelance, right. but it takes a long time to figure that out and to, to really like carve out those hours of the day that are just for you. So ultimately I think that's probably the biggest difference. It's not even about like the structure of the, of the company or the actual institution that you're joining. It's more about how does your life physically change when you're, when you're given that stability of having a job constantly, as opposed to having to like hunt in right. and, and like really work your ass off. And, you know, one thing you've mentioned when you're talking about hunting and you send out the emails, do you have any type of other, like, you know, agenda that you give yourself when you are hunting? Um, and then just kind of what, what do you do agenda wise for yourself? Even when you're working kind of like, do you kind of set yourself a very stringent agenda for yourself during the day about, you know, when you're going to do things and what time you give yourself, you know, like I'm going to write 30 minutes here. I'm going to do this, do this, do this kind of how, how do you structure your time to be efficient? I mean, I wish I could say yes to all those, <laughs> to all of those options in my mind. I'm like, yeah, you do it. You you're writing all the time, but like, I, I, I just, I'm, that's one thing I'm trying to, to get better at this year because, um, I just wrote my first feature last year nice. and which is great. I wrote it with my mom. So there you go. <laughs> and, um, which was a great experience and like we got it done. And so we still need to like do all the tweaking and fine touching and, and all that kind of stuff. But it's so hard to just like schedule that time to sit down and, and write on your own. But I mean, I think right now I, in, in my personal, like if I was going to say in the cat Sullivan production model, I would probably have, I probably have like eight script ideas that I want to develop and write, but I ultimately just carving out that time for yourself is probably the hardest thing to do mm -hmm. and just to set a schedule for yourself. And that's, I mean, for me, that's what I'm trying to be better at this year. Um, I'll have my first time off this year um, in the beginning of March. So hopefully I can really push for that. But I, I, that's a really important, important um, part, I think, to push your own projects forward. Right. When, when you have that time off, I bet your, your little dog is going to appreciate you being around. Yeah. She's like, excuse me, can you, can we go for a walk? Um, but yeah, no, I, but that's ultimately what I end up doing is like, I'm like, Oh, you just spent two weeks just like binge watching TV because you need to like recharge and watching your dog play. But it's like learning how to push yourself in those downtimes. It's really important, but it's tough. So, I just completely lost my question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I had it and, um, hmm. Way to go, Kev. Yeah. All right. So awkward, awkward moment there. Um, <laughs> okay. You'll cut it out. Probably not. We have, no, I'll leave it just to. Yeah. Just to make fun okay, of me. No, yeah. Just leave it. Then people can meditate during that moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one question that I had that I was hoping to ask way earlier in this podcast, but because, oh, you know, no. we're not scripted at all. Um, <laughs> you have, um, you've been six different kinds of producers from associate to <laughs> oh, segment. Gosh. 
Uh, can you just yeah. give us a little bit of a rundown of the different kind of like what the different roles can be? And I know, you know, in a, in a feature film and in TV and the different kinds of TV shows, they're all a little different. Um, but, you know, maybe like the two sentence version of a line producer, an associate producer, a supervising segment. Yeah. Uh, producer, challenge producer. Yeah. The ones that you've especially the positions that you've been. Yeah, I just pulled up my resume so I can remember. Um, <laughs> that's what that's okay. what websites and resumes are there for. <laughs> um, so, okay, so on the production management on the production management side, there is a line producer, and that person's like the money. They're like they're the money person, so they're they're the person to tell you when you can't do your thing, do the the thing you want to do. That's their ultimate overall job, and they negotiate your deal. But uh, so that's that producer. They're they're not really in the producing department but they're a producer if that makes sense um on the producing department side the lowest level producer and this is all pretty much for um i would say for competition television or reality television um and there's some crossover to scripted but then scripted is a little bit different and i'll explain that later but um the for an AP, which is an associate producer, they're the lowest level. So they're the people that have maybe just bumped up from being a coordinator or a PA. And they're the ones that are kind of developing. Um, they're the ones kind of running the department on the lower level. Like they're the ones helping the producers stay organized, managing documents, um, and just providing support overall for the department. And then there's within the associate producers, there's a few different sections within that within that level so like a field ap or story ap those are the ones that are like logging notes and tracking the story of the contestants or of the cast members and they'll at the end of the day do something what we call as a hot sheet which is basically summarizing like the information for that show that day so it's like oh kevin made a tart and then everything (laughs) fell apart and then that they use that for the interviews later on an associate challenge producer is helping to produce the challenges, which is creatively coming up with what the challenges will be. So you're basically creating games all the time and then also logistically producing it. So for like on MasterChef, that on that show, when I was an AP on that, that involved like we did a shoot on the top of rooftop in Vegas with 101 um with, which, with 101 performers from all over Vegas. And that, that consisted of like figuring out how to get a table to float on top of a pool, um, the booking of all the dancers so that you can fill them into the table and managing those kind of the, the minutiae of the logistics for that, for the challenge. A challenge producer is like the head of the team. So they're the ones that are like the lead for for a challenge and on on any given show they'll have like probably two to three challenge producers depending on the depending on how complex the challenges are and they're the ones kind of running point to make sure that uh one that all the logistical things are happening if you need diners all the diners are there if you need extras all the extras are there um that everything is legal because the big thing to keep in mind for game shows and for competition shows is that there's money on the line. So there's all these laws about how you operate a game to give away money. So you have to be, you have to write like, you learn how to write like a lawyer basically to write rules. So you have to write challenge rules of like all the specifics about what you can and cannot do. 
on the show. So essentially it's like you are writing the rules for Monopoly and like <laughs> everyone has to follow them. And then you're the one who's like, you can't, Rebecca, stop. You cannot do that. So you're like really not the funnest person. Um, and are those given out, what, are those given out to them to all read like before they come into the show or are they yeah. kind of like given that, you know, during, how's that done? Yeah. So, um, the rules side of things is interesting because before anyone joins a competition, there's something called series rules that are sent to them. Series rules are like a 20 page legal document about the structure of the show outline of the competition, a lot of stuff about like collusion and you can't, um, you can't uh, basically rig the competition. Hmm. So um, that's sent out like, before anyone can come on to the actual series, this is any competition show before they can come on, they have to sign the series rules and understand them. And then when you're like, if you're watching a show, the host will explain what the challenge is, and then you'll see the contestants start. They'll run to wherever they need to go or, you know, they'll whatever it is. Um, but in real, in reality, there's like a false start. So you see them run, but then we stop them someone like myself will step in, read them the challenge rules, answer any questions that they could have on that. And then they have to like sign it and then like raise their right hand and pledge that they understand the rules. It's very, all very serious. And then, and then they get to go into the competition. Yeah, I could see why you cut that part out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then when they're in the competition, there's, we're usually hovering around to make sure no one's breaking any of the rules. Like it's, mm-hmm. I mean, we're basically like narcs, like on the set, just trying to like <laughs> keep track of everyone. But it's like a very important part because you want to make sure that the, um, that the gameplay and that the overall competition doesn't lose its integrity. Um, how, how, which often, is what that's doing. how often do you guys have to stop for, collusion for example like if you if you see oh. something do you have to do you have to kind of give it a beat and go wait is this real or are you supposed to just jump in the second you even remotely get the idea something's wrong i mean i i don't think i've been doing this i've been doing competition shows for so long now and i don't think i've ever had to stop someone for um i don't think i've ever had to stop someone because i thought that they were cheating no one's sneaking a block damn. of cheese in on their pants damn but i was, I was I, hoping you'd have a good one on that but, but they're, they're, it's more sad. It's like, or someone's making this amazing cake and they didn't meet the requirements. So mm. it's like they needed to do, I don't know, like a three tiered cake and they had to put like 12 macaroons on it. And then they only put eight. And then I had to be like, I'm sorry, you can't win. Right. <laughs> like that stuff, which is like a little sadder, but, um, Hey, the rules are the rules. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're the really, like, I, you feel really cool. Cause you're just like, no, actually you can't win. You and had the best cake, Linda, out. but you can't win. Yeah. Yeah, because you didn't accomplish the challenge. Yeah. So that's kind of what the challenge producer does. But um, the, I guess for a segment producer, it's kind of similar to what a challenge producer does, but without any of the rules stuff. So that's more just producing the segments. So you're booking locations, booking um, background or um, booking uh, talent to come on. Um but overall, that's that's a very logistical position and usually is found more on um, uh, docu-series. So like, you know, like uh, Real Housewives or um, the one I did was Famously Single, which is was a short-lived E-series where, I don't know, uh, celebrities from like the Jersey Shore found love. But <laughs> That's possible? Um, did they? Yeah, no, they did. They did. It okay. all worked out. Um, and then what else? 
I'm just looking through all these. I'm looking through any other specific ones you guys have questions on? Uh, no, but I, I'm going to follow it up with um, with currently on Nailed It. You're our supervising producer, right? Or at least that's yeah, that's where you've because you you didn't start as a supervising producer for them, correct? You've, no, you, but my, you've moved into the, that role. Yeah, my first season I was a challenge producer um, on that show, and then which a lot, for that show is it's an interesting thing to produce because. I don't know if you've guys seen it, but basically we have to make these beautiful cakes and then we bring contestants on and then they have to try to replicate it. And in like a certain amount of time, these people don't know how to bake. Mm-hmm. It's very like comedy driven, but there's a lot of thought that goes into what those cakes are going to be um, beforehand to make sure that they are accomplishable in a way that's good for the show. So, um, so you don't try to, did, you don't try to come up with cakes that are just not going to be attainable. No, we, we really try to come up with things that are like, that could potentially, they will have a, a decent enough shot at. Hmm. And, but you still hope but, that they fail well, for humor purposes. Yeah. That's the whole, the whole point of that show is just like giving good effort. And like, that's why people like it. Cause it's like, it's like anyone can do it. It's very feel good. And, right. um, it's not like cutthroat kitchen or, um, any of those shows that it's like two enter and one leave. Like it's yeah. more about like, uh, we're just here to have fun. So that's, that's, that's why I'm so of, excited for that Lego build show that Arnett's yeah, on. I just, yeah, I just watched the first episode. Of oh, that. did you? Pretty good. Was it good? Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. Have you seen, have you? Oh, s- I have. I, I haven't seen it yet, but I've seen, I've seen the previews. So I'll, hyped I'll be, about that. I like, the, I like that he smashes the things at the end. That's probably my oh, favorite he does? part. Oh, spoiler alert. It's in the preview. <laughs> How dare you ruin it? Um, so, you you were mentioning earlier that you have um, your first time off in first week of March, which is uh, mm-hmm. coming up real quick. Yeah. What um? Do you have anything on the horizon that you can talk about? Anything that's coming up, or you're just you're going, you're back into the freelance world where you have to send your emails? Yeah, I'm kind of back into freelance where I send my emails. I don't have anything you know, there's shows that I'm like, Oh, that might be coming back at this time, but you can't really guarantee. You can't really just, it's hard because you can't bank on a show coming back the same time. It came back the year before, you know what I mean? Mm. So that's a little bit, um, that's a little bit tough, but, but usually the spring is pretty like with March, it's pretty March and April. The whole industry is like kind of lit back up again and everyone's starting to shoot. Um, so there's, I'm sure there'll be something. I hope. <laughs> I mean, that, that's obviously the hope. And being out in LA, I, I would imagine um, there's just there's a plethora of opportunities if you know where to look. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. But hopefully, hopefully, I, get, I can do nailed it again. That would be really fun. That shows a, a real, real. It's probably the that is the show that I I think I laugh the hardest out of any of the any of the shows that we do. Nice. Okay. Well, I mean, it definitely, um, it's right. It's right in your wheelhouse as we've talked about before with the comedy and the culinary aspects. So Mm -hmm. when you guys are, you know, I know what it's like to just wrap one movie, but is it any different, you know, wrapping out a season of a show compared to, you know, maybe something that's more one off or do do you guys leave stuff kind of open and ready for next season? If you know that you're coming back kind of what's your, what's your wrap out? on a show look like? Are, are you kind of wrapping out each individual episode as you go? So there's less at the end or is it all kind of just kind of left to the end and you do one big bulk dump of, of rapage? Well, so for, for 
a show like Nailed It, we shoot for like two weeks. And there's, I mean, obviously there's such relief when we're done because it's two weeks we're shooting like, I mean, 12 episodes in two weeks. Um, and they're full, full like 12 hour shoots. So it's a long, it's kind of a long run. It's a push, but at the end of it, I mean, as far as what the producers are doing, um, I, you know, as Kevin mentioned, I'm, I'm supervising that show now. So I'm like, they better be wrapping as we go because <laughs> we don't have time. Um, but overall, yeah, basically by the, at the end, there's usually like a wrap period where everyone packs up everything and mm-hmm. gets that into storage. And then, um, where I find out that no one did the wrapping as they go, and then I have to do everything. Mm. And then, um, you say that, yeah, so you say that, like, has that happened? Oh, that's like a constant thing. I think oh, with all producers, but it doesn't matter what show it is. That's what okay. everyone's like, please, please wrap as you go. But then you just, cause you just don't have time. So a right. lot of people just don't have the time for it. So usually it'll be like a last day, kind of like you've been delaying your essay for months like the last day everyone's like i gotta get everything in right now yeah um that was me in college yeah that drove Brittany nuts because i i would yeah. do almost every homework assignment within the last 18 hours drove yeah drove her nuts because she was the one who was working on it two weeks in advance <laughs> <laughs> like honestly well you you know Brittany. you if anything you yeah, remember how she was in, I was in college i was on on the same same page as Brittany. <laughs> like everyone get your stuff in we don't have time for this <laughs> two two very different um personalities <laughs> well um i mean that's that's all my questions uh Honestly, Kat, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you and, and really getting to know the um, ins and out of the of the, the TV world out in L.A. Um, I definitely think have you back on one time, maybe later in the year. Well, once get some it, more shows yeah. and well, you know, you you, you have a feature script. You have a feature script. You got you got to start pushing out. So I know. You know, I'm going to you guys are going to talk to me later this year and I'm going to be like, guys, I did it. I finally organized myself <laughs> and I scheduled <laughs> all my time off. Well, that's that's what we hope for. So um, nonetheless, really appreciate it um, yeah. for, for people who want to um, keep tabs of you. Is there a website? Uh, I'm very familiar that you are incredibly active on Instagram, but any, <laughs> very, very, very entertaining Instagram page. Um, Thank you. Um, but, you know, how can people get a hold of you and, and just kind of see where your career goes? Um, I mean, honestly, it's my Instagram page <laughs> because I don't, I probably need to get a website and get that going. But um, yeah, I think Instagram is, is my calling card currently. Hey, uh, can you give the handle real quick? Oh yeah, that's probably helpful. People <laughs> just won't know the look. Um, <laughs> it's uh, Canted Cat, so it's C A N T E D C A T. Perfect. Which Canted's a camera angle that apparently only I learned about. So no one knows what that means. Uh, also, a version. I, I'm I'm guessing just a Dutch variant of Canted. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and everyone's like, "Why do you? You should change your handle." I'm like, "It's." Well, Dutch it's cat fine. doesn't sound as good as Canted cat. So. <laughs> I know. God, the alliteration guys, come on. Yeah, it, it ties back into you being you wanted to be over in uh, Finland, so it it, oh. it, yeah. it all it, <laughs> exactly. it, it all comes around full circle. <laughs> it all comes back to Finland. So if anyone from Finland wants to, have you come ever gotten me, to Finland? Let me know. No, it's, oh, it's like geez. on my bucket list. I need to do it. I need to do it. I have well, a whole list. You know, you wrote you know, a movie that could take place in Finland. 
a few adjustments. That's true. Maybe that's what I should do. <laughs> just, just a handful of adjustments, and I bet you it'd be, it would fit in perfectly. Currently takes place, takes place in New York, but I'm sure it could be Helsinki. Whatever, whatever we need. All right. Well, thank you again. Really appreciate the time, um, and we'll we'll keep uh, keep track of uh, Nailed It and all the other shows that you're currently working on. Great, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Eli. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Filmmaker's Guide to the Industry. If you gained any value from the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any suggestions for guests or topics, contact us on Instagram at Filmmaker's Guide to the Industry. This show was recorded at Two Stories Media Studios in Clearwater, Florida, and produced by Two Stories Media and Greenlit Entertainment.